Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Perfect. So I uh, want to thank our, our audience for joining us uh, again today. Uh, we apologize for taking the day off last week. Uh, I promised you while it was the, the call was not present, we were not taking COVID time off. It was mainly to kind of regroup with our university and our healthcare system to try to understand what the next steps moving forward are in order to best prepare for the time being as we see these numbers continue to emerge. It, 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 I know it, it seems like you know we were it was so bad back in March and April and May, and now we're seeing this resurgence. So uh, I promise you, all your healthcare professionals are preparing and doing our best for the healthcare system to accommodate. But at the same time, before jumping into the numbers, I want to make a point that we've always stressed here, and that's to remember that your doctors, your nurses, we are your last line of defense. Your front line are you all, you amazing community leaders who listen to our information, who stay up to date with the information, and do everything possible so you can help yourself, help your family, help your neighbors, and help your community. So you can be doing that. You're officially part of the frontline team. You're helping put an end to this pandemic, which seems like a tall task at this moment given the rise in numbers. So let's go over the numbers, and I'm going to say a few other words, and then we're going to turn it over to our guest, Dr. Zunnelman. So where are we now globally? We have 57,466,861 cases. We are well past the million mark. We're at 1,369,446 deaths from COVID-19. Our mortality rate at the moment is about 2.4%. In the U.S., we have 12,093,903 cases, and we're over a quarter million of deaths. We have 258,654 uh, deaths from COVID-19, giving us a mortality rate of 2.1%. And here in the state of Maryland, 177,086 COVID-19 cases with 4,245 deaths giving us here in the state of Maryland a mortality rate of 2.4%. This morning, uh, giving what's called grand rounds. Grand rounds in, in academic medicine just implies some professional comes who's identified as an expert and speaks on a subject in front of all doctors and peers. And this morning here at Johns Hopkins, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., we had Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institutes of Health. And the commentary he was making, just catching us up with where we're at, a lot of it is what you've been hearing from us. There was one analogy that I thought was really striking that I think is worth sharing with you all. That The reason why we want to emphasize this is there's two paths to helping us put an end to this pandemic. The one strictly through science is getting, gaining immunity through the vaccine. And, of course, with Dr. Zunnelman on today, we can ask a little bit more thorough vaccine questions as well since he is one of the co-researchers. And the vaccine, the pace with science, it is great. It, you know, I, I'm, I remark on it no different than how I saw the spaceships fly out over the weekend. When science and mankind can prevail, it's always exciting. But we shouldn't see the path of a vaccine 
as one way to sacrifice the hygienic interventions we've been requesting all along, right? The hygienic interventions being physical distancing, hand hygiene, and the face mask. I say this because someone gave an analogy and said, if you're on a boat that is sinking and you see help coming, you see a ship distance away, but it's coming, you don't start putting more holes into your ship to make it sink faster. No, you do everything possible to buy more time until that boat comes. And so the analogy there, I think, is appropriate for what we've been saying through all of these calls since March 14th when we had our first COVID-19 community call. So with you know, the pandemic, right, that's the thinking ship, we can mitigate its impact through these hygienic interventions. We know how the virus spreads. We've been learning it very well uh, under the course of a year, right, because it's not even a year old, but we've been learning it, right? We've been learning about it. We know how it spreads, and we can find measures to mitigate that spread. And we've seen this work in other regions of the world and so forth with appropriate physical distancing, hand hygiene, and face masks. It helps. So while we should be encouraged with science as it moves forward, there's still that other science that has told us how to stop the spread, and let's keep emphasizing that. And I know there's a variety of situations that's going to be unique, like, well, what if I, you know, do A, B, and C with this many people and so forth? And we'll do our best to try to answer those specific questions for specific settings. At the end of the day, I think if you always can default to remembering three basics, physical distancing, face masking, and hand hygiene, and if you stay conservative towards that, and, you know, if you kind of envision everyone has the virus, I think it will help guide some decisions you'll be making of, uh, public gatherings, and so forth. You all, community listeners, mean the world to me. Like you guys, I, 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 even though I may not know you all by name, I always talk about you guys when I talk to others and say, our COVID-19 community listeners on Fridays, these are modern heroes. They are saving lives or spreading information, right, so we can take our lives back in the future. So thank you for that. With that said, that was just my opening remarks, a little bit of just reaffirming things that we've known, but also recognizing that you're hearing a lot about the vaccines coming up and so forth, but I don't want us to lose sight of what we're doing now. Now for our main guest, uh, a returning individual to these calls is Dr. Jonathan Zunnelman, a man who needs no introductions other than Dr. Jonathan Zunnelman or Dr. Z. So Dr. Z, are you there with us? And Dr. Z, don't forget to hit star six to unmute, and then additionally, make sure you unmute your phone. Okay, sorry, sorry, I got that. Can you hear me now? We can hear you now. Dr. Z, you're making a rookie mistake, potentially. It's okay, my friend. Over <laughs> to you. <laughs> okay. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Dr. G, for the kind introduction. It's always a pleasure to be back with everybody. Um, I think, you know, as we heard from, uh, you know, from Panagis and as we've seen, there is plenty, plenty of terrible news and pain and suffering around us. And we are seeing, uh, and I think basically uh, we're seeing this here in Baltimore, uh, but actually it's in the upper Midwest of the United States. Uh, the epidemic is raging completely out of control. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, as we've heard from Dr. Fauci, as we've heard from other leaders, um, 
we all have our personal responsibilities to help in uh, managing this uh, and try to manage our own behaviors. But uh, on the other hand, this represents a catastrophic public health failure and a failure of leadership, uh, which um, I think we've seen. And it's probably not going to get any better the next two or three weeks because of all of the political shenanigans that are going on at the top level of the federal government. Um, this is an epidemic which really needs a coherent, cohesive, integrated national response strategy, which we haven't had one. With that said, however, there is, um, uh, there is actually a very bright shining light at the end, and that's about, this, and that, that's about the vaccines. Uh, when we passed, uh, we've spoken in the past, probably about uh, two or three months ago, about about a variety, about different uh, about different vaccine uh, different vaccine uh, what we call vaccine platforms. These are when we talk about a vaccine platform, that is the chemical the concept the conceptual chemical makeup of the vaccines, uh, and we also spoke about the phases. And I'll just go through these very briefly. The vaccine platforms that are used, for example, all of us have gotten measles and mumps vaccine. That is a very old type of vaccine. That is what you do is you take measles uh, virus, you kill it, uh, and or you, uh, you make it weak so it can cause you to get to develop an immune response, but it does not cause active disease. Those are called um, viral component vaccines or live virus, or with the weakened vaccines called a live virus vaccine. Very similar for polio uh, and many of the other diseases. Some vaccines are also protein vaccines. For example, hepatitis B uh, is a protein vaccine. Uh, the vaccines that were developed for COVID uh, utilize some very new technologies and some very new platforms. Uh, the one that we've heard about, too, is called an mRNA, messenger RNA. And what happens in these, in this situation is there's a couple of things, is a couple of things. One is there is no vaccine, there is no virus component in this vaccine. This is all synthetically made material. Second, the way the vaccine works is a completely novel way of doing this, and what it basically does it, it injects messenger RNA into us. What is messenger RNA? Messenger RNA, if you go back to high school biology, uh, whoever, whoever can remember, and I have a lot of trouble remembering my high school biology, uh, but messenger RNA is what codes for proteins, uh, to for your body to make proteins. Uh, normally what happens is the chromosome in, you know, in our cells uh, decide it's time to make some proteins, Messenger RNA is made in the, in the, in the nucleus of the, of the cell uh, with the chromosome. The messenger RNA is sent out into the cytoplasm, which is the substance of the cell, and the cell makes protein. The messenger RNA basically sets up, sets up the assembly line to make the protein. What happens with the mRNA vaccine is the body is tricked. We inject the mRNA for the spike protein, so the protein that's on the outer part of the coronavirus. We inject that into our cells. There's no other part of the coronavirus present. It can't make coronavirus. It can't cause us problems. But what happens is, is our body cells take up this RNA, uh, 
Then our body makes the spike protein, which is the major protein for the coronavirus, just that protein, just that one protein, nothing else. And then our body generates an, an immune response to this. So it's almost a, it's a very, it's basically what, what it's doing is hijacking our own body to make the virus protein that we're going to generate an immune response to. So it's multiple steps, but it is actually a very slick way of doing this. Never been done before. Um, and, and so what happened was, is we've heard there have been 35, there between 30 and 40,000 people enrolled in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine studies. These were the first two to go out. And one of the side effects, the one when you're when you uh, so there are 30,000 people enrolled in these studies. I'll review again what happened. The first. Uh, First study, phase one, just looks at whether it's safe. It was found to be safe. Second phase two is to look at what the dose is. They figured out what the dose. Phase three started over the summer uh, where they enrolled 30,000 in each study. Half got placebo, half got the vaccine. And then you wait, and you wait and see how many cases. Well, you wait until you get a certain number of cases. For these studies, it was about 150 cases. And once they get 150 cases, you break the blinds, you unmask the study, you unblind the study, and you see, well, how many patients in the vaccine group got the, got the infection and how many patients in the placebo group got the infection. And if a vaccine works, you're going to see cases in the placebo group and few cases in the vaccine group, meaning that it's effective. The numbers without if there was no effect, the numbers should come out about the same because it's random. People were randomly picked, uh, randomly got the vaccine or placebo. So what happened with Pfizer, and this is what we know was published last week, is they they were expecting to get 160 cases, 164 cases. They got 170 cases as of last Monday, when they broke the code. There were eight cases in the vaccine group and 162 in the, in, the, in the placebo group. Eight in the vaccine group, 162 in the placebo group. When you do the math, the vaccine was 95%, over 95% effective. This is an incredible result. Nobody expected it to be this good. The Moderna vaccine came out about the same as well. The other things that we know about the Pfizer vaccine is that it prevented severe disease. It not only protected against mild disease, it protected severe disease, nine to one. We also know that the, that the groups were about half and a half, people over 55 and people under 55. In the over 55 age group, and this is really important because we know that Vaccines sometimes don't work as well in older people because as we get old, our immune systems run out of gas too. So basically, but in the older age group, the vaccine was 94% effective. We also know that the Pfizer vaccine group had 10% African Americans and about 15 to 20% uh, Hispanics and Latinx. So we also know that this is a very, this is working extremely well in minority group members as well. So this is an incredible result, and the side effects were 
uh, pretty much uh, were very mild. People had sore arms. Some people had mild flu-like symptoms for a day or two, uh, which then resolved completely. There are now over two months of follow-up data on over 25,000 subjects in each one of these studies and the side effect. And we know that after about two to three months, if there's a side effect that's going to happen, you're going to see it. Obviously, these are things that are going to be really very closely monitored for the next, uh, for the next two years because these vaccine studies go out for two years. So I think this is incredible news. Um, obviously, we know that, from at least in the newspapers today, that the company has applied or is applying to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency youth authorization, and we will be seeing vaccine uh, being administered, hopefully by Christmas time. And there's a priority list. The first goes to healthcare workers who are taking care of active patients and first responders, then to older individuals living in nursing homes uh, and uh, congregate settings. Uh, and then there's a whole s series of other, um, of other groups uh, who are prioritized, including, I know in Maryland, incarcerated persons, uh, you know, uh, folks living in highly impacted communities and so forth. Um, so I think the challenge, there are several challenges that I see, and this is going to be the first of several vaccines which are going to come out, but there are several challenges which we see coming down the pike. Uh, one is an operational logistical challenge, and the other is a more um, what I would call a spiritual challenge. The logistical challenge is, uh, I think, is you know, is there's a lot of logistics and complications that are involved in getting these vaccines out, manufacturing, uh, making sure it gets to the right place. It ha these have to be kept very cold and so forth. Um, these are operational issues that can be fixed. There are people who's, who basically do this for a living. Uh, and in fact, parts of the groups that are doing this are the Army. The Army is actually very, knows how to do this type of stuff. The company, the company is involved, especially Pfizer, which is the first one, has tremendous experience at uh, managing these things in different places. The more spiritual challenge is basically uh, working with our communities to, you know, to actually inform them, uh, have a dialogue and inform them and provide them with the information that will, uh, you, know, provide, you know, that will actually lead them to making the right decision, which I firmly believe is getting vaccinated. We know that people have a lot of mistrust. We know that people are suspicious. Uh, but, I, you know, in my mind, this is something, this is actually an incredible result, and, uh, which we haven't seen in our lifetime, and we need to actually bring, you know, work with our communities to help them uh, understand this and understand how this is incredibly protective against COVID and try to respond to a lot of the concerns that they may have. So I'll leave it at that. Dr. Zellman, this is, uh, or Dr. Z, this is Dr. G. I have one quick question to you. If you can provide this insight, great. If not, no worries, no worries. So we're hearing great feedback from Pfizer and uh, Moderna in regards to the process of their vaccines. And today Pfizer is submitting to the FDA for 
emergency release and use of their vaccine. Can you provide us any insight into where the timeline is at the moment for the Oxford vaccine? I think that's with AstraZeneca. Yeah. Maybe? Go for yeah, it. So ask, yeah, so it's actually interesting. Um, one of the reasons, you know, there is a silver lining in having a, a pandemic that's completely out of control because nobody expected uh, these studies to happen to basically be completed so fast. Because if you recall, the, the way you study studies are designed is that you have to accumulate 150 to 164 cases, depending on the specific study, before you can break the blind. And if you have effective control, you're not, it's going to take you a long time to do that. If you have a pandemic out of control, it's, uh, it, it's really, it happens very quickly. Just to give you an example, on November 8th, the Pfizer group analyzed the first 70 cases. Uh, by November 13th, they had analyzed 170. Sorry, November, November, uh, November 8th, it was the first 94 cases. By November 13th, it was 170. So they kind of reached an exponential curve. Uh, the, so the other vaccines are the Oxford, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which use it has conceptually does the same thing. Conceptually, what it does is it convinces the body to make a lot of this spike protein and generate an immune response. It just gets to that through a different mechanism. And I think one of the things that scientifically is uh, important is that this is, you know, we know now that developing antibody to the spike protein is the way to protect against this infection. People suspected it. People thought it was a good idea, but you don't know for sure until you actually have the data in front of you, and the data are really strong. So I think these other vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine is rapidly enrolling. They're enrolling uh, probably 1,000 to 1,500 people a day. Uh, we're anticipating that we will probably see results from them probably in about a month because they're enrolling in the middle of a very aggressive uh, pandemic. So they should be able to accumulate cases very rapidly. Uh, and I think we'll see them. And probably the Janssen vaccine, which is a, uh, a similar, Janssen is a European pharmaceutical company, a very similar, probably, it will probably see results from them soon after the first of the year. So I think we should be seeing multiple vaccine studies, uh, you know, coming, um, you know, being reported out over the next two months. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Zettelman. And I know we're getting now, Dr. Zettelman, your, your popularity is palpable because we are getting tons of community questions. So, Kimberly, help us through this. Go, go over, my friend. Start, let's start asking so we can uh, enlighten, engage, and empower the community. Go for it. Thank you, Dr. G and Dr. Zellman. Uh, so yes, a lot of questions coming in from the community, so we will try our best to answer them um, as many as we can during this time. Um, the first one is, what would you recommend in cleaning, seat, cleaning seats in public areas, such as churches, theaters, transportation vehicles, et cetera? OK, so it's a good question. Um, 
I think let's go back to basics here. And basically the basic is how is the virus transmitted? The virus is transmitted through the respiratory route, which means that you have to be within six feet of somebody who's exhaling droplets or uh, church may be a little bit different uh, because of singing, and the, which is what they had the separate situation. I'll get to that in a second. So in terms of surface cleaning, um, it's, it's a type of thing where, you know, I think maybe clean more, assuming that these are surfaces that are being routinely cleaned. Um, clean more than what you normally would to a practical level, but don't drive yourself nuts. So, for example, if, you're, if, if you had a socially distanced church gathering, uh, maybe 25 people in a large church space, um, after services are finished, do you have to scrub down the entire uh, facility, scrub down the pews, everything like that? The answer is no. I would just use regular cleaning procedures that are normally done. I would, however, make hand sanitizer very easily available uh, to everybody. If you similarly, if you're on public transportation, we know that if the windows are open and the bus is not crowded, it's actually safe. Uh, uh, and everybody's mask. Uh, but I would carry hand sanitizer with you, actually, and wash after you, you know, when you get off the bus. And because remember, surfaces are important when your hands touch a surface and then touch your nose or mouth or eye. If you have virus on your skin alone, you don't get sick. So it has to get, so you have to, you have to break that chain. Oh, and the issue with churches, which I mentioned, was that I think um, one of the major concerns about uh, the ch churches and church spaces is singing. Uh, and the reason is, is when you sing, especially if they're not masked, you actually bring up particles from deep in the lungs, and Dr. G can speak to this more than I do. And actually, some of the most, some of the largest outbreaks have been conducted, uh, you know, have occurred in choir practice and church services when people were crowded in. Um, the, you know, the other thing is many of the older buildings are not well, are not are not super well ventilated. So the solution to this is. If you have services uh, and you can't do it outdoors anymore and you want to do indoors, make sure people are spaced, really strict capacity limits, people are masked, and probably, you know, you know not too many, not too, you know, it's, if singing happens, really keep it low, uh, low volume. You know, it's not the time to be belting out you know, uh, you know, some of these hymns because it's not a good thing right now. Dr. Zenneman, I, I love that you emphasize the singing part at the end, too, um, just because, you know, everything that we've been mentioning around the six feet mark is really meant for kind of normal breathing, normal speaking, yeah. where kind of the particles come out and what we would say is more of a uh, laminar flow. You guys remember high school? Oh, I know Dr. Zenneman and yeah. I are making you guys remember high school, but... Um, so lavender just means particles are moving out nicely in kind of a parallel fashion. But when you sing, right, or yell, it really creates more of a trajectory of turbulence um, that can uh, cause these particles to really go much further. Um, and I see this because it was one of the conversations around the Jewish holidays when I had to speak with cantors about my concern around singing and so forth. So, you know, uh, 
we, we recognize, you know, uh, physics and biology can play a role to give everyone the best insightful insight. Um, but at the same time, you know, these adaptations, as you're hearing from Dr. Zellman and myself mentioned, just recognize, like, there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it, and we can get there together. Just, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, in a few more months, hopefully. Um, but Dr. Zellman, thank you for that update uh, with the vaccine status. Kimberly, back over to you. Thank you. Um, so just to clarify, you know, given the, how the virus is spread by droplets, is, is it important for people to disinfect, like, counters or other services or, like, the public benches? Is that necessary if they are um, regularly washing and sanitizing their hands and not touching their face? Um. I would say if somebody, if you talk like a park bench, um, like a public park bench, first of all, outside is the, the, you know, it's a much different situation. Um, again, if you have sanitizer, it's perfectly fine to, to wipe down a park bench before you sit on it, but it's more important, I think it's more important just to use a lot of sanitizer on your hands. In fact, the more and more we learn about surfaces, the more we learn that they're really not that important if everything else is taken into account. Sanitizing your hands, good ventilation, and so forth. And, and I want to make a, an additional point to that, and Dr. Zimmerman is, is spot on, as he always is. And keep in mind, you know, with this virus being under a year old, a lot of the concerns we raised were just because there was always biological plausibility that something could happen. And now with this virus almost uh, achieving one-year status, We've learned so much of some of our concerns, like as you were just mentioning, Dr. Zoneman, the surface concern yeah. has kind of begun to fall. Like it's, you know, the, it's plausible, yes, but it seems not to be the biggest way of spreading. So, you know, thank you for, uh, for emphasizing that, Dr. Zoneman. Uh, so next question is, will individuals who either tested positive or have been symptomatic or hospitalized with COVID still need to receive or should receive um, the vaccination? Ooh, that's a good question. And uh, the answer is uh, uh, we don't know the full answer to that yet. And what they're asking is, Let's say for people, let's take people who we know have had, well, actually there's three questions in there. One is if somebody has COVID, has had COVID, uh, whether they knew it or not, and they get the vaccine, uh, is there a problem? Uh, some, you know, because in some cases, in some other infectious diseases, people may react very strongly to that, almost have an allergic type reaction. The answer is no, it's perfectly safe. And the, Clinical trials that did the vaccine studies did not screen people before they got the vaccination. We haven't seen any problems with that. So this is something where you don't have to go through a pre-screening process. The next question is, is do you have to, if you had COVID, uh, do you need a vaccine later on? And the, answer, the reason we don't know that is because we don't know yet how long the immunity lasts after either having natural infection or after being vaccinated. These, with these vaccine trials, the people who are in the trials are being followed for two years. And if we begin to see cases increasing, let's say, in a year, year and a half from now, 
in the vaccine group, uh, we will, that would actually be a very strong hint that these that folks may need boosters. At the same time, the, vac the people doing the vaccine trials are also drawing blood periodically, and they're trying to figure out, is there something that we can measure in the blood which will say, okay, you're immune or you're not immune. The same thing goes for people who've had COVID. So if you've had COVID, uh, are you protected for life? So far, most of us have believed that, you know, that when you get COVID infection, you are immunologically protected at least for a while. We do hear of these occasional cases uh, where people get a second infection, but these, in my opinion, these are probably one-offs because there's, you know, there are people out there in the community who have some type of underlying immune disorder and may not know it. And if, even if it's a rare event in something which is affecting millions of people, these things are going to crop up. But right now, so our experience is only for, the, for 10 months. So we don't know whether immunity is lifelong, whether it's for two or three years or so forth. And I think that's something we're going to have to just follow carefully and make our and update our recommendations as we learn more. As you know, as I've said uh, in, in previous calls, the only thing that I can tell you with certainty is that many much of what we'll tell you in the, today will be different uh, in six months. Thank you, Dr. Zettelman. So we, we talk about the, the three basic interventions as wearing your face mask, um, washing your hands, sanitizing, and um, staying at least six feet apart. Do you see, given apparently uh, some international reports and data that people have been reading, do you see that boosting your immune system being added to that list, particularly taking vitamin D? Um. I think, you know, I, I think it's good in general. I think it's, I mean, vitamin D is good for, I mean, we all need vitamin D. I think vitamin supplementation is something which an individual may want to do uh, for their general health. Vitamin D is especially important in the wintertime, especially for people who don't get out very much because uh, vitamin D is active. The way our body manages vitamin D is that it's activated by sunlight. However, outside of taking care of yourself, having a good diet, uh, you know, exercising, and being generally healthy, I don't think uh, vitamin D supplementation or other vitamin supplementation will make makes any kind of major difference in your susceptibility to COVID. So um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of reading through these more little lengthy ones. Um, so um, going back to the vac the two vaccines, um, have you heard or read any data showing and including good representation of African-Americans in these studies? Uh, yes. Um, uh, both the Pfizer, the Pfizer study had about 10% African-American population in it. Uh, uh, the Moderna study had about eight. Uh, I've seen subgroup analyses of, of, the, of the Pfizer data, which I unfortunately I cannot speak to, I, I cannot speak to right now because of confidentiality. But 
it is as good or better in African Americans than it is in the general population group. So I think this is this. So this vaccine, these vaccines do not discriminate. So um, with that uh, said, do you know if they're inclusive of HIV positive folks? Have they been inclusive? They were. The, yeah, the, study, the studies were inclusive. Of the, the studies are, actually were and are inclusive of HIV infected people uh, if they were well controlled. So, for example, people with HIV who are on, taking, who are on medications uh, and who are asymptomatic and, you know, are... Um, are included in these studies. That was a big push that was made by many of, the infectious disease, by many of us in the infectious disease community early on. Uh, we don't have uh, we don't have data on those yet. It's too early to be that sub to do the subgroups. However, you know when you know uh, so, you know um, however when you're looking at the tremendous efficacy. Of uh, 95%, it's hard to believe that it's not effective in the HIV-infected group as well. We did not include people with uncontrolled HIV uh, or or AIDS, and the reason is is that those folks are known to have major immune uh, uh, immune you know uh, immunological dysfunctions, uh, you know problems with their immune system functioning. Uh, and the concern was that they, you know, and those folks may not react to a vaccine. But once folks, once HIV-infected people are, you know, are, you know, are, are on medication stable, then there's no reason that, in my opinion, that, that, that they sh cannot take the vaccine. In fact, they should. Thank you, Dr. Zimmerman. So uh, the next question, actually, um, the last question that has been submitted for today, um, when you, earlier in the conversation, you had talked about um, a vaccine potentially being available by Christmas, but more reserved for healthcare workers, first responders, and elderly, um, and those in correctional facilities. When do you think the rest of the population might receive um, the vaccine? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I think it's. Uh, it's, it's, that's primarily driven by logistics. We know that the company, you know, Pfizer has said that they will have 20 million doses, 20 or 50 million doses available by the end of this year. Some of it's being distributed internationally. Uh, and then they're planning to make a billion and a half doses next year. Uh, so it's, um, it's a manufacturing and logistics challenge, which we have not seen in our lifetime. Just to give you an example, these all have to be manufactured under highly sterile, highly controlled conditions. Where do you go and buy? You can't call up your supplier and buy, you know, 500 million sterile vials, you know, those little vials that the vaccine comes in. With that said, I think we'll be looking at vaccination of general population around the second quarter of 2021. Thank you, Dr. Zettelman. So um, those are the questions, though. I do want to address one other thing um, regarding traveling during the holiday, but is there anything else, um, Dr. Zettelman or Dr. G, um, that you want to discuss regarding vaccines or any other recent news? Um, do you want to discuss travel? Well, 
I, yeah. my yeah, my concern. Sorry, Dr. G. Do you want to? Oh, uh, no, I, I agree with Dr. Zunman. I think the point of the uh, vaccine, I think, has been well said during this time. And Dr. Zunman, we will continue re-inviting you as we get more updates hmm. on the vaccine. But we can turn our attention to the travel conversation. Yeah. Actually, there's one point I want to make about vaccine, because actually Dr. Fauci, uh, I saw Dr. Fauci last night also on CNN, uh, where he had a long interview with, uh, Chris Cuomo, which was kind of uh, entertaining uh, because almost like it, they almost went back to two Italian guys from New York, uh, you know, talking to talking at each other. But uh, there's a couple of key points which he made last night. One is, even though as we, we there's a lot we still don't know about the vaccine. Um, and we know the vaccine prevents disease. We know it prevents severe disease. Um, it's probably going to prevent, since it prevents severe disease, it's probably going to prevent death. Uh, however, there is a possibility that it can still, it may not prevent against a mild infection, which may go away in a couple of days. We don't know that yet. We won't know for a couple of months. So even if folks are vaccinated, uh, until we probably mid to late spring, uh, at least we're still masking and social distancing. I think we don't want folks to believe that just because they got vaccinated that it's okay to go out and party. I think that would be one of the worst things that could happen. So I think it's still, we still have a long slog through winter related to that. Uh, the other thing which Dr. Fauci mentioned is that um, he said, he actually mentioned he has three grown daughters who live in different parts of the country and, you know, they are, and this is Thanksgiving and Christmas are obviously very important family times for them, and they're going to do a Zoom holiday this year. Just to add a little bit more to the travel conversation as well um, that we'll be bringing up, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're all probably recognizing we, we want to keep our loved ones safe and so forth. Um, if if the, your social bubbles will likely um, somewhat interact with us, others who you have not, I, I would start, one thing I would encourage now is just start talking to them now about what they've been doing in regards to public health management and what have they been doing so they don't catch the virus. That, I say this, yeah. um, Dr. Zellman, you may be getting these questions too. Like, there, we have colleagues who, you know, their loved ones are in college or maybe, you know, some of our colleagues are in college and they're coming back. So I would make a point, touch base with them now. Find out what they are doing. If they've been going around hugging people who are actively sneezing, maybe you take you know, caution around them, but I would start engaging with them now because I always say the best way to not spread COVID-19 in your home is to not have it come into your home, right? So uh, talk to them now more than ever about uh, what they've been doing as they likely may travel back. Oh, thank you, Dr. G, um, and again, Dr. Zittleman. So the thing I wanted to raise, because I've heard so many community members, um, either by emails or phone calls, telling me about their plans to travel out of state for the holidays. Um, and many of them are older adults, um, and family, their family members um, encourage them to go see them. So can you kind of just sum up in general your advice and recommendations, thoughts about them traveling, particularly out of state, and if they definitely go, what precautions do they need to take? 
um, before going and before returning back to Maryland. Mm. So this is a difficult situation. Uh, I look at this as uh, it's a very difficult holiday season this year. Um, I also look at this to the standpoint is I can I believe with pretty much as much certainty uh, you know I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow pretty certainly uh, uh, maybe it's not as much as that but it's pretty close I believe next year is going to be completely different uh, so this is not the la unless this is you know, you know unless there's some specific family situations uh, which require travel. I would strongly advise against it. Uh, and the reason is, is that um, there are too many variables ongoing which we have no control over, especially the one that we are in the middle of a, the, in the middle of an epidemic that is increasing exponentially. And when you think about this as a probability exercise, each step that you take, each event that you encounter, each person you encounter may in, a, in, in his or herself have a low probability of exposure, but when you add them up, they can really, uh, they can start to expand. So I would ask the question one, is travel absolutely necessary? Second, if you decide that it absolutely, can this be, you know, and is there a, uh, you know, it's one thing if a relative is passing away or having a major life event, but if it's, you know, if it's just to go travel to see people for a Thanksgiving holiday, which is going to be the same as next year's, I would think seriously about whether it's absolutely necessary. If it is, then I believe everybody, uh, you have to then ask the question, what is everybody in that group we're going to be with been up to? Has everybody been quarantined? Has everybody been out and about? Have fo are folks, are, are any of these folks in occupational situations, uh, for example, essential workers or grocery workers where they can't be socially distanced all the time? Because think about it, you're going to be around a table in a poorly ventilated room, eating and drinking, and sometimes even yelling and screaming at each other because families are families. And, um, uh, and you know, where the exposures can happen, and this is, and we've seen multiple events where this can happen. So, so if you, uh, so the strategies to minimize this are, you know, if you can't just stay within your own household, Minimize who's going to be in your pod. Uh, do not and, and avoid large gatherings, and and try to understand what everybody else's exposure has been. Traveling by car is uh, is fine as long as you're in the car with people with your own nuclear family. Uh, traveling by by plane, uh, the planes themselves are okay, but the problem is is getting on the plane and getting off the plane and getting to the airport. And Thanksgiving this year, Thanksgiving is usually a crowded time to travel. And so therefore, um, I don't want to sound like Scrooge, but I try to avoid it. Thank you, Dr. Zettelman. And I really um, appreciate you reiterating that. And I think that was such a great analogy about 
you know, pretty sure the sun is going to be rising tomorrow. And I just, <laughs> I just worry so much when I hear these stories about people traveling. One I know is traveling to a state with a very high number of positivity rates, and I hope they're listening today and may reconsider their plans on traveling. So I just really appreciate your your candid and, and honesty and. And to, you know, we, their goal here is, you know, not to, you know, make decisions for people whether that, but to just to make sure people understand um, the precautions and, and risks that might be involved um, for doing so. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, so before and we, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, you know, I just want to say one closing word because I know we're about to wrap up. Um, we really want everyone to have a great Thanksgiving, and you know, we yeah. have all gone through this journey. I mean, we this pandemic, unbelievable, right? I mean, uh, how many of you predicted this for 2020? Um, one of my ophthalmology colleagues, that's an eye doctor, said, oh, 2020 was supposed to be doctors. And so, but we've come a long way. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You heard Dr. Zellman discuss the vaccine. I can tell you, as uh, someone said to me earlier, and this is coming from a student with, who was listening to her COVID-19 curriculum, and he goes, he's like, well, it's hard to give a vaccine to someone who's passed away. And that, that really resonated with us who were listening to him as he was recapping the lessons we just taught him. Because that just means right now more than ever, knowing that there's you know, light at the end of the tunnel, stay safe so we can return to normalcy with, uh, with our loved ones. So I know, I know it's going to be an unusual Thanksgiving. And Dr. Zellman, I love the emphasis on traveling if you, if you really have to, but otherwise, you know, just we, we can do magic of FaceTiming, Zooming, and phone calls for the time being. But that's mm -hmm. I just want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of our great listeners. Great. Over to you, Kimberly. Sorry about that. No, no, I appreciate that. Thank you, Dr. G. And uh, thank you, Dr. Zellman. We always appreciate um, you joining our calls, and it is certainly fantastic of great information you shared. So. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and uh, I wish you and your family a happy and safe Thanksgiving. My pleasure. Thank you. And so before I turn this over to Reverend Johnson, I want to remind everyone again that there will be no call next Friday, November 27th. Please join us again on Friday, December the 4th at 11 a.m. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly, and thank you, Dr. G and Dr. Zinnemann, for um, always giving us such uh, relevant and useful and calming uh, information that we can trust um, as a part of the community. I certainly appreciate it, and I know the rest of the community does as well. We congratulate you, Kimberly, on your achievement with your master's degree, and we wish a very happy Thanksgiving to everyone who is on the line. And so just take this moment with us uh, for just this word of meditation and prayer. God, we come to you at a very precarious time when we are seeing infections and deaths from COVID-19 surging at an alarming pace. We see emotions fraying to the point of being torn apart under the stress and pressure caused by the uncertainty and distrust and mixed messaging and fear swirling about in the midst of this viral storm. But many are exhausted from the frustration and feelings of hopelessness and for some, those feelings are now turning to anger. People who once turned to each other in difficult times of God are now turning on each other. Families are becoming more afraid. Communities are becoming more divided. 
identity politics is becoming the order of the day, adding new layers of frustration and vitriol while the pandemic continues unabated and uncontrolled. Our very spirits cry out, to whom shall we turn? And so, God of ancient years, who knows our very thoughts and hears every cry, moan, whimper, and groan, we stretch our collective hands to thee. We turn to thee for comfort. We turn to thee for solace. We turn to thee for peace. Most of all, we turn to thee, O God, for healing at every level of our existence. Beginning with the smallest microorganism and moving through every cell of every organic being and every living thing on earth, please speak a word of healing and restoration, we pray. And then we implore by your grace that you would especially speak healing to every human being, beginning at the core of our spirit where we find meaning, purpose, and love, speak healing. And then allow your word of healing to flow into our souls, the seat of our mind and emotions. And from there, let your word of healing flow into our bodies, freeing us of the physical ravages of illness and emotional and spiritual breakdowns. Thereby, God, heal we frail creatures of clay from the inside out and let that healing be manifested on our part through an outward show of gratitude. God, please remind us in this season of Thanksgiving that true gratitude is itself a healing balm that if we allow can heal us of hatred and hurt, division, hopelessness, and anger. A daily dose of gratitude can fill us with love and compassion, care, selflessness, and abiding hope. We trust, Lord God, that you not only hear our prayers and supplications, but you also incline your ear unto us and you answer. And therefore, we thank you. Our hearts, even in this moment, are filled with gratitude towards you and overflow with joy, knowing that even now, healing is taking place at the micro level of all humanity and nature. And soon, we will see it face to face. In your name, O giver of abundant life, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Again, have a great, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll hope to talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.